Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. joining us for this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I am a PhD student at Royal Holloway, currently investigating how love is valued and experienced in religious families of old dissenters in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Carmen Mangian. Dr. Mangian is a historian of British and Irish religion and gender. Her research is used to highlight wider themes of social identities, intentional communities, transnational religious life, Catholic internationalism, philanthropy, medicalized and sacred spaces, the medical missions, and the lived history of the Second Vatican Council. Her current research examines the gendered nature of the Catholic medical missionary movement of the early 20th century in both Britain and Ireland. Carmen has published numerous journal articles and edited volumes. Her monographs include Contested Identities, Catholic Women Religious in 19th Century England and Wales, published in 2008 with MUP, and more recently, Catholic Nuns and Sisters in a Secular Age, Britain 1945 to 1990, also published with MUP, and indeed the second monograph is the subject of our episode today. delighted to be here today with Dr. Carmen Mangian talking about her most recent monograph, Catholic Nuns and Sisters in a Secular Age, Britain 1945 to 1990. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on the EHS podcast, Carmen. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm really pleased to be here today. Oh, thank you, Carmen. The privilege is definitely ours. Uh, For our first question, I wonder if we can start with some definitions. Now, in your monograph, you talk a lot about women religious. I wonder if you can suss that out for us. Who exactly were the women religious? Yes, that's a really good question. Um, In in, um, the research that I do on religious life, um, oftentimes we call these women, women religious. Um, And we call them that Um, specifically um, in part because it refers to the fact that they take certain religious vows. So they take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, These, uh, uh, in medieval life, uh, were called evangelical councils or councils of perfection. Um, These are similar vows are taken by Anglican women who enter religious life. Um, Buddhists take vows also. So these, these, People who take, and obviously, and men religious, men take vows also. So these people who take vows, we call them, um, you know, women religious or men religious. And in some ways, it's a bit of an umbrella term. Um, Within um, kind of um, what sometimes is called non-studies, it is a, a bit of a shortcut term because there are various styles of religious life. So there are nuns that are enclosed. Um, there are sisters that are active and work outside the convent, so they teach and nurse. Um, there's all sorts of other ways of living religious life, canons and canonesses. 
And these in the Catholic context are defined by canon law. So when we say women religious, um, it's, that, it's a term that encompasses kind of all these, these varied forms of, of religious life where vows are involved. Um, again, you know, the book is called Sisters and Nuns. And in a way, I've opted to use both terms rather than women religious um, because it, it acknowledges that um, in, my, um, in my work, um, I've used archives and I interviewed women who were both who are sisters and some who are nuns, some who are enclosed and some who are active. Thank you. And another important term that you discuss in your monograph is the Second Vatican Council. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about that. And it is a, a, a council that occurred uh, from 1962 to 1965. It was a, a worldwide uh, a council um, to about over 2,000 bishops from all over the world were um, invited to this big, big meeting. Um, there were also observers and auditors, some sisters, though very few, very few women were involved in this, but laymen uh, and laywomen also. And the, for the book, this, this council in many ways is important. In, um, it was meant as a, a, a way of updating um, Catholic life. Um, the, the term that is important is aggiornamento. So this aggiornamento means update. That's kind of the lead motif um, of the Second Vatican Council. And out of the council came 16 documents. Um, and importantly for, for this research in a way is that the, the council documents, um, it, their interpretation of these documents changed the look and feel of Catholicism. And most importantly is that women religious took these um, changes very seriously. Um, they are and were, above all, kind of a, obedient daughters of the church. Um, the term renewal is often used, the renewal of religious life, and that was um, part of what was they were being instructed to do. Now, they didn't all embrace these changes, okay, meaning that they didn't always uh, want to make all these changes that were made. Some did, some didn't, some sat there in the middle, but but they were, um, they, they, these changes were made um, to, to religious life. This renewal was made to religious life. Um, so speaking of change, in your monograph, you're examining changes in religious life for women religious in the post-war era from the 1950s to the 1990s. But how was life characterized for women religious in the 1940s or during the war? Yeah, this is a real important question, I think, because the Second World War in many um, in many uh, respects is, is very much like a hinge moment um, for religious life, I think, particularly for women uh, religious. Now, it's a hinge moment both for those women who are in religious life at the time of the Second World War and those who enter kind of shortly after the war. So one of the characteristics, um, you know, that is often discussed is how um, very enclosed and separate from the world religious were um, prior to, to the war. And in many ways, this is true, but in many ways, this changes because of the war. Um, it, you know, there were two kind of, two different ways this changes changed in Britain. Um, 
One had to do with, so many, many of the sisters were educators, they were teachers. So they were involved in evacuation, you know, they evacuated with their students um, during the Second World War. Um, now what these meant, this meant is that they left their convent enclosures, they left their convent life um, to live elsewhere. Um, sometimes they were managed to live in the same uh, space, the same building that their students, sometimes not. Um, but this evacuation really influenced how the relationships with each other and the relationships with their students, because they were outside those convent walls um, where there were various rules and regulations that needed to be followed. And, and so now life was lived differently, even for those who stayed in their monastery. So I'm thinking of enclosed nuns, um, even their lives were changed because so, for example, um, in one case that I talk about, the, the Sion uh, Abbey Brigittines, um, on their monastery grounds, they had um, American soldiers that were stationed there because their, their property had been requisitioned. Um, and so they were hearing, you know, the American soldiers, um, um, you know, they were, it, they were hearing them uh, on the, uh, there were loudspeakers, they were hearing them and, and they were meeting them sometimes on their ground. So these are, you know, these are important ch changes to how, um, how religious life was lived um, at the time. But those who entered religious life after the war, many of them, you know, had worked during the wartime. Um, uh, in, many of them had been conscripted. So, you know, they had some experience, some wartime experience. Um, and many of the sisters who I spoke to, and I interviewed over 80 sisters uh, and nuns for this project, um, many of them talked about the idealized, you know, uh, idealism of their generation, um, this idea of wanting to create a, a, a different world. Um, so they enter religious life with these kind of um, ideas in mind. Um, and again, you know, during the war, that uniformity of religious life for those who were in convents and monasteries, um, you know, an horarium, for example, which is like a time schedule that tells you what time to wake up, what time to say prayers, what time you're eating meals, what time you're teaching. That all went, you know, to a great extent out the window because of the, the wartime evacuations or even because, uh, you know, those um, sisters, who, those nuns who stayed inside their monasteries. So I wonder if you could say a bit more about how religious life was reconfigured for these women religious immediately after the war in the 50s and 60s. So there are um, other changes um, that are being suggested and um, they have been suggested from the most unlikeliest of places, to my mind, um, and they are being suggested by Rome and the Holy See. So, and just to backtrack a bit, you know, from the 1930s, there, there is a growing sense in some quarters um, that religious life is becoming a bit antiquated. And some people are even talking, you know, in Rome of a, of a crisis of vocations. Now, this is mostly in reference to kind of enclosed orders. Um, but by, you know, then you have the Second World War. And then there is a sense, then in the 1950s, what happens 
is there are these congresses, these big, you know, think of them as like big academic conferences, but big conferences of teaching sisters, big conferences of the leadership of these religious congregations. And these congresses and conferences are happening both for men and women religious. But the ones for women religious are um, talking about modernizing religious life. Um, the, the Congress of Teaching Sisters, for example, um, it, you know, the Pope is encouraging women religious and teaching women religious to become more educated. There is a sense that they aren't as well educated as their kind of secular counterparts. Um, so from the 1950s, what you start seeing is that, you know, more women religious are going to universities. I mean, there were some going before the 1950s also, but there is just much more emphasis on, on women religious becoming properly trained, more fully trained, um, you know, more than, than teaching certificates, more than the state requirements even. Um, and, and again, there is, you know, uh, encouragement to modernize religious life. Now, some groups of religious, um, you know, some religious institutions take some of the comments on board, some don't. Um, you know, Rome, you know, is, is making suggestions at this point in time. It isn't saying you have to do this or that. So these, these conferences and congresses, I think are really, that happen in the 50s, are really important to, to then what, what happens afterwards. And then of course, there is the Second Vatican Council, which I kind of mentioned a bit earlier. Uh, and the, the Vatican, Second Vatican Council in a way moves even further than, than these conferences and congresses. And they do um, require something called an adjournamento chapter. Um, and chapters were these big meetings that happen within, you know, within a congregation, within a community. So within a group of sisters. So for example, um, the Daughters of Charity of St. Paul, or the Sisters of Mercy, or uh, the religious of the Sacred Heart. So these meetings start occurring um, where discussions are start happening as to what changes you know, are going to be made. So these are really important things that happen kind of in the 1950s and 1960s that spur, kind of spur on these, these changes in how religious life is lived. So continuing further into the 20th century then and thinking about the late 60s and especially the 70s uh, with the rise of women's movements, how did these impact women religious? That's a really interesting question. Um, it, it, and it's interesting in part because the, the more international historiography points to certainly North American um, sisters like American sisters and Canadian sisters and, and some of the French sisters, you know, joining in the various women's movements, like, uh, for example, American sisters um, joined the national, you know, some of them joined the National Organization for Women. Um, now, I'm not aware of this happening in Britain. Um, and um, though, though there is a sense that the sisters and, and nuns certainly are aware of what's happening with the women's movement. Um, they're certainly aware of it because most of them are teaching in the classroom. And so they're, they're, you know, they're, they're keeping up to date in that sense. There is a very small group of sisters who's involved, who were involved in the Catholic women's ordination movement. So that is definitely linked to the, to the women's movement in many ways. Um, 
but but in general, you know, I would say just again from my interviews um, and from the documents I looked at in the archives that there's so much happening in terms of the changes within religious life, in particular the changes in governance within religious life, that there's there's not so much attention um, being paid to the you know the women's movement in the in the 1970s. Having said that, you know. There are other social movements that women religious are, you know, more exercised by. And I'm thinking of things like the campaign for nuclear disarmament or ecological justice, the ecological movement or protesting the Vietnam War. You know, this is a time, too, where there is an influence, you know, the, the late 60s, 70s. There's the influence of liberation theology and these ideas of social justice. Um, and women religious really, you know, those are the social movements that women religious are 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 are, are very interested in, um, and in thinking about uh, and connecting them to the religious ministries that they're they're involved with or they want to be involved with. I wonder if you could say more about the social justice and other other arenas in which these women religious were involved in that. What are some examples of their involvement in these things? I mean, this is an area which I think deserves um, a lot more research than than has been um, has been done. Um, and uh, and the research that I did was was in a in a way very. Um, very minimal, in part because I realized that some of some of these um, questions about these other movements were were you know were books in their own right. Um, so what I actually did it, for the book was I thought I thought about how how these changes in ministries happened, and um, some of the points I made were that a lot of them happened um, you know were begun by individual women. Um, who became interested in 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 social justice and um, and widening their um, their ministries um, and particular there were questions in some particularly in teaching congregations you know what were they doing you know teaching in schools and particularly those who were teaching in boarding schools um, and and certain convent schools. Um, they were very influenced by these ideas of social justice. Um, I mean, this is a very kind of complicated story that I'm praising quite a bit, but um, but there are, are lots of um, tensions in the conflict because of this, you know, because many of the, you know, education was um, at the heart of, of, of the foundations of some of these congregations. And so there were sisters who were saying that, you know, do we need to, do we still need to be teaching in traditional schools like we're doing? Um, this was important in the 19th century when we were founded because at that time, you know, ed education was 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 not structured in the way it was structured today. Um, that Catholics weren't necessarily being educated, uh, working classes weren't being educated. So, so just to say that these. You know they were they were rethinking their ministries. I mean, essentially, and what started as kind of individual or small groups of women rethinking their ministries um, becomes more relevant um, as um, 
as another of the important changes in religious life um, becomes more evident, and that is the diminishment in numbers. Um, and this diminishment in numbers, um, which is happening, you know, in many congregations, you know, from the 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 40s and 50s, so less women are entering religious life. Um, this diminishment in numbers means that they can't run all these schools that they that they're running. That slowly they're replacing sisters who are retiring, um, you know, with with lay lay teachers. Um, so this also kind of encourages their rethinking of ministries. So they, you know, and in rethinking ministries, they they start thinking of of other ways of of you know living religious life. Um, so this will include things like retreat houses. This will include things like becoming parish ministries. But this also includes something um, that's called inserted communities. So. Um, a small communities of sisters will perhaps, you know, uh, live in a uh, in a poorer area of um, of, a, of a poor urban area, um, and and work and liaise with people um, in that area. Um, they may or may not be Catholics, um, but this idea of of um, of becoming a part of 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 a community and and um, trying to uh, work with that community. Um, so again, this is an area that that needs much more research, I think. Um, and and I've just kind of um, you know talked a bit in the book about how these movements began, um, how you know they did create tension within the convent. This wasn't a straightforward yes, we'll all do this. There was a lot of um, you know, disagreement and having to work through how to do this. And diminishment is also a part of this story also. So moving to the end of the 20th century and indeed to the end of the timeline that you cover in your book. So you see growing globalization at the end of the century. So how did transnational relationships transform the experience of women religious? Mm. So, I mean, obviously, they're part of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church has always been a, a, a global entity, a global enterprise. Many of these women were part of organizations that were already international. So, you know, they, um, some of these, particularly some of these teaching congregations were huge, spread all over the world. Um, I mean, in North America, in Europe, and Africa, and Asia, um, they would have convents there. Um, um, run by, I mean, interestingly, when you think about this, run by a group of, you know, a, a usually a fairly small group of women who were leading these very large congregations. So they were always part of these large international institutes. Um, and in some ways, they were always transnational organizations, always. You know, when we're talking about crossing national boundaries or we're talking about cultural flows and exchanges, um, very much, you know, ideas and social practices were exchanged, although I'd argue in many ways that they were exchanged much more kind of at the higher echelon of leadership than at the lower echelon of leadership. What happens, you know, from very much, I would say, from the 1960s and 70s, um, these congregations are, A, realizing the importance of kind of uh, governance structures that includes all the sisters, something, you know, I call participatory governance uh, in the book. And um, 
And so what happens that, so when they have these big international meetings, it is no longer just, you know, the leadership that meets in Rome. It is now, you know, ordinary sisters who are also invited to, to give their input. And these are ordinary sisters that are coming, you know, from the United States, from uh, Japan, from Asia, from Britain, from parts of Europe that are meeting in Rome. It's not just the, the higher echelons, it's, all, it's also these very ordinary sisters who are meeting. So I think the transnational flows that we talk about become much more much more widespread than they were in the 19th century in that, you know, and women religious are encouraged to get to know each other, to get to um, know their, their fellow sisters. Now, it's not always practical. They can't be running around, you know, cross countries, but they do all sorts of things like they, they organize pen pals, you know, in the 60s, well, mostly in the 70s, um, you know, trying to encourage sisters to get to know each other. Um, so, so I think this kind of, you know, the transnational experience does um, move in a different direction, you know, post 1960s, 1970s. Um, and there is also kind of a, a, a growing understanding, even within kind of this idea of diminishment of, their, of, their, of a global role. Um, there is an organization that is formed this International Union of Superiors General, it's called the UISG, um, is formed uh, around this time, the 1950s, 1960s, and it becomes a way for religious institutes to kind of meet uh, more regularly um, and engage with kind of the larger, larger issues. Um, and the UISG is, is today, you know, very important um, you know, a very important organization um, for women religious. So, so one of the movements that they're very involved in at the present time is, um, you know, this, this movement to end human trafficking. And this is a, a, a movement, I mean, this, this has become, begun post the period of my book, but, but it is a way of women religious from all different congregations all over the world to meet and kind of try to um, try to lobby for, for changes in legislation um, and try to um, offer ways of engaging um, with this, you know, uh, with this, yeah, with uh, this idea of ending human trafficking. So my next question is one that you'll probably commonly hear at an academic conference, but I think it's really interesting and important nonetheless. And so I want to ask, uh, reflecting sort of more widely on the 20th century and your research, um, do you see this era as one which is predominantly marked by continuity or change for these women religious? I, this is a great question. And, and most people, when they ask me this question, it's interesting. Um, talk directly about the Second Vatican Council, and which I find, um, and, and when they ask it directly about that, you know, I, I, I'm much more equivocal. But when you talk about this era, you know, I'm assuming that you mean kind of this period in 1950s to 1990s. And so then I, I, you know, I feel much more confident in saying that this is, you know, very much a time of change. Although there were, uh, you know, there were definitely precursors of this change before, 
you know, before the 1950s, we talked about the, the Second World War, for example. But, but, but this is a, 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 a time of great change. And in the book, I look at some of these changes with regards to government, governance and uh, relationships within the convent and outside of the convent, um, interactions with the world, ministries, which we just talked about, um, and ideas of womanhood. Um, but what, what I like to say is that, is that it's not so straightforward in many ways, that it is change, but it's changed at very varied paces. So that not all congregations, not all groups of religious change in the same ways at the same time. So for example, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, I would say that lots of congregations were very involved in changing their governance practice, meaning who is making the decisions um, and moving towards kind of more participatory governance. You know, one of the vows I talked about in the very beginning was obedience. Well, that meant in the 19, you know, before the 1940s, that meant, you know, you, you obeyed your religious superior. You didn't ask any questions. You just, you know, uh, you know, followed the followed the uh, uh, dictates of, of whoever your religious superior was. It's much, it, it's very different from the 60s and it becomes different from the 60s and 70s, though it doesn't happen all at once. And that women, um, sisters and nuns are given more, um, more ability to, to be a part of decision making. But other relation, you know, but other aspects of religious life are much, can be much slower to change in some congregations. So, for example, um, you know, if we talk about the religious habit, you know, some congregations um, change the religious habit. I've got one group called the, the Sisters of Charity of Our Lady Mother of Mercy. They're a Dutch congregation that had English convents. Um, and they changed their habit, you know, in the, you know, by the 60s, they were noticeably different than their, their you know, they were wearing noticeably different clothing than their, the sisters uh, in other congregations. Um, but others, who were very quick to change governance practices, for example, didn't necessarily change their religious habit till you know after the period of the book, or maybe didn't change them at all. So I think it's really important to understand that yes, there, this is a time of change, but it doesn't happen all at once. It is a it is a, a longer process, and not all the changes um, you know happen at the same time. So thinking more about the generic uh, general 20th century context, this century is described by some as holding a turn towards secularization in the middle of the century around the 1950s and 1960s. Do you see a turn towards secularization manifesting in your research or indeed uh, influencing women religious? Yeah. I mean, if if we continue to measure religious identities in really kind of static ways, like going to church services, um, then we have, you know, which I think um, much of the turn towards secularization has done, you know, kind of looking at these quantifiable ways of, of, of having a religious identity. Um, and I think what I'd like to say is that I think we need to look at um, religious identities as being much more fluid and much more 
related to other ways besides, you know, church services of, of, of living life. There's a good book by, um, it's, it's, it's by a, it, it's by a team of people. It's Alana Harris and Jane Garnett, um, Redefining Christian Britain. And, and they talk about kind of new religious movements and new ways of, um, new ways of, of living religious identities that are kind of outside these are post-secular ways of li living religious identities. And I'm saying this because um, for those people who are very wedded to the idea of a nun in a habit, in a convent, um, in a very structured way of life, uh, you know, wearing very particular kind of clothing, um, you know, then they are going to see and identify, you know, what is happening in combat as part of secularization. Um, I'm, I'm not so convinced that that's true, um, you know, in part because, you know, the women that I interviewed were very much still women of faith. Um, they were very deeply invested in their religious congregation, um, in the value of their religious life and their religious ministries. So those, you know, that, that, that is at the heart of the religious identity, um, much less than the clothes that they wear or, you know, whether or not they live in communities that we identify as, as convents. Um, so, you know, so in that respect, you know, I think that they're, you know, I, I don't see a secularization. You know, I see these changes as, as part of evolution of religious life and you know religious life has a very long 2000 year history that is one of continuous evolution and continuous peaks and troughs i might say too um so perhaps what we're looking at i don't know um i can't tell into the future but you know is just a different ways of you know living religious life I wonder if I can ask you some perhaps more personal questions about your research, starting with what interested you in this avenue of research? I think in the beginning, you know, when I started my PhD, um, I, you know, I was interested in women's history. So I, th that was always going to be the kind of research I was going to do. And lots of um, different avenues of research that I could have taken. I thought, oh, somebody's already done that. And, and you know, I, I, for one of the for one of the MA courses I was taking at Birkbeck, I um, I had a class on Victorian Ireland, and um, I read this great book by Catriona Clear on um, Irish nuns, and I just thought, oh, I wonder what's what's happening in in Britain, in England, you know, are, what I, I knew nothing about religious life in Britain. Actually, I pretty much knew very little about religious life. Full stop. Um, but I was just intrigued by it. And in part, I was intrigued by it because in the 19th century, what I found, and so my first work um, was, uh, was a book called, what ended up being a book called Contested Identities, Women Religious in 19th Century England and Wales. And that book um, kind of charted the, um, the development of religious life in England and Wales um, and count, um, kind of comparing it, comparing these women's lives to Victorian women's lives. So, um, and what I found fascinating about that work um, was how, you know, how these women in the 19th century really had some opportunities that um, their Victorian counterparts weren't sisters and 
uh, didn't have. So in terms of the type of work they were doing um, and, and the support that they had, you know, um, on the schools they were running and the institutions they were running. You know, these were women who were running, you know, rather large congregations and institutes and schools. Um, and while, yes, you know, there is a, 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 there's always a bishop and a priest around, um, but in essence, to a very great extent, they are managing these institutions, you know, by themselves. And they are, you know, um, so I found that really fascinating. Now, for this bit of work, um, I'll be honest, I never, and I, and I say this in the um, acknowledgments, you know, I, I never intended writing a book on the 20th century, in part because I was very wedded to my, you know, being a 19th century historian. Um, but I had had, you know, when I worked in archives, a lot of my archives are in religious houses. So I met lots of sisters and nuns. Um, and, you know, and, you know, some of the, some of the groups, you know, would invite me to tea. Some of the archivists were sisters and they didn't, you know, we'd, uh, we'd chat and, and they tell me about, you know, they tell me stories about the 70s and 70s. And I was just fascinated by that. And I realized that, unfortunately, no one else seemed to be doing this kind of research. And I thought, you know, these historical, these memories, their memories were really important. So this was what kind of encouraged me to kind of write this book and, um, and use both oral histories as well as the archives. Um, but what I was interested in, you, you know, whereas the first book was much more about kind of women's history and, 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 and in many ways work um, and professional life, with this book, it was social change because this was just such an important, you know, just such a huge shift in how, you know, their lived experience of, of, of the, the very quotidian aspects of their lives, um, as well as the religious aspects of their lives too. But, um, but you know, and, and as I was reading kind of the larger historiography on the, on the 1960s, you know, you, you, I read very little about, well, read very little about religion in the 1960s at all, except the, you know, uh, Arthur Marwick and many others who, you know, just looked at religion as being kind of anti many of the social movements of the 1960s. And I kept thinking to myself, but they, you know, what's happening in religious life is a social movement. You know, it is something that that's happening, um, that is incredible change during this during this time, why isn't this a part of, you know, you know, a, a part of the mainstream history? Um, and I, I go to great lengths in my book to talk about, um, you know, to to talk about the the historiography that I work with is actually the historiography of the long 1960s. So when I, you know, when I talk about um, governance in participatory democracy, I also talk about kind of 1968. Um, and and the the kind of more secular movements. Um, so each of my chapter, you know, I I I work with a historiography that is more secular in many ways because I I I'm seeing these connections um, that I find really really interesting. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of um, yeah where my interest comes in. 
I think you've already started to answer my next question, but maybe you'll have more to say about it. And that's why do you think that this particular avenue of research is important or valuable? Uh, you know, uh, I think religious identities, you know, uh, are important despite, you know, despite the talk of secularization. The, they they are still very important parts of, of people's identities, um, framed in different ways, um, lived in different ways. But I, I just think these intersections of religious identities and gendered identities and collective identities are are very important. Um, and um, and how these lives are lived um, are relatable to kind of larger historiographies and larger questions that we ask, um, you know, about, um, you know, ab about the world we live in. Um, so my final question for you before I let you go is what's next for you? Do you have any other projects that you're working on at the moment? Mm. So, so I covered the, the 19th century in my first monograph and the post 1950s in this monograph. So. I'm actually thinking now of kind of moving into that first half of the 20th century, which, you know, um, and but particularly kind of thinking about um, the missionary enterprise. So it's work that I, I, I've done some research on. I, I did some research on this kind of in the, in the intermediate stage between the, the first book and the second, um, when I looked a lot at the medical marketplace. And I'm just kind of intrigued about um, the kind of this this missionary enterprise. But but with this work, I really want to think more about kind of Britain and Ireland, um, in part because the the response to mission work is is somewhat different. Um, and it's because of the, the difference in the national context. Um, but I want to kind of delve into that a bit more deeply. But actually, I'm I, I'm 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 less interested in what happens in the missions as more this idea, you know, the reception of the missionary enterprise in Britain and in Ireland by the by the sisters, um, and the gendering of of the missions um, and educating kind of the medical missionary and the marketing of the missions. Um, so those are the kinds of things I'm interested in and, and looking a bit um, through the lens of gender, of course, but also globalization and also kind of post-colonialism. So just thinking about about that. Now, it's a project that, um, you know, I ha was hoping to start um, this past year, but um, obviously COVID kind of um, uh, didn't didn't encourage much um, research. So hopefully in the in the coming years, I'll I'll do a bit more research on this. Um, have you considered doing any research on men religious and comparing them to women religious, or, or indeed have you already done a little bit of that through the course of your research? I have, um, and and you know there are um, in fact this project that I just spoke about. You know I I am considering. Uh, you know, bringing in men religious also. I mean, I, I think the one thing that the that has been missing from the historiography, certainly missing from my my own work, is is that that comparative framing of, of men and, and women religious. And it's interesting because some of the um, the research I've been doing more recently for a volume that I'm editing and for some chapters I've 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 been writing 
kind of about religious life in the 20th century that looks at both men and women religious. I mean, there are these really um, very important differences in how religious life is lived. Um, and I think much more work should be and can be done for it. So I might be doing it in this project, but I, I'm, I'm still not quite quite sure if, if I, if, you know, if I can tackle that in addition to, to Britain and Ireland. Um, so, so kind of watch the space, but I, I definitely think that it's an important aspect that that relational aspect is, is really missing in the historiography at the moment. So, um, and needs to be kind of needs to be addressed. Um, and the relationships between um, men and, you know, women religious, because there are families kind of, so there's Franciscan women religious and Franciscan male religious, and those relationships between, within those, between those families are, are, uh, are, can be very important too. I think we can learn lots of things um, by interrogating the way religious life and lived in those, those communities. We may have to have you come back and do another podcast episode with us uh, talking some more about comparisons. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing about women religious in the 20th century and your research today. And, and I'm sure we could learn much more in the future as well. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on this podcast to be interviewed. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, so it was it was a delight to hear about your research. Before I let you go, would you like to remind our listeners of the title of your monograph and where they might procure a copy of it? Yes. Um, so the book is called Catholic Nuns and Sisters in a Secular Age, Britain 1945 to 1990. It's published by Manchester University Press. And the very good news is it's in paperback as well as hardback, so it is reasonably priced. Um, so um, yes, and certainly uh, the MUP website um, is probably the, the best place to, to get a copy of the book. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.